Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10? And our text this morning will be uh, verses 15 through 18. And we come through the final section of Hebrews that deals with the doctrine and teaching of the book. It's not to say that the remaining chapters and verses do not contain doctrine. They certainly do. But they mainly concern the Christian life and how one is to live the Christian life in light of what we have read of the doctrine in the previous verses. In fact, it's chapter or verse 18 is the, the turning point in the book. It moves into a, another section of warning And then it goes into how we live the Christian life. And as we close out this section, we're dealing with what was brought up last week, and that was the idea of perfection. We were told in the sermon last week that Christ sets the believer apart as being perfect, as being holy, as entering into the sainthood. And today we begin to see how that is explained through the new covenant. And specifically this morning, we see three main points, and that is this, is the Holy Spirit confirms the truth of the new covenant, or the new covenant is confirmed by the Holy Spirit. We see what the contents of the new covenant are, and then finally we see what the result of the new covenant is. And so we see that the Holy Spirit confirms the new covenant, We see what the contents of the new covenant are. And then finally, we see the result of the new covenant. So if you have your Bibles open, let us hear the word of God in Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And this is the word of God. And the first thing I will have you note is that it is the Holy Spirit that confirms this the author makes very plain in verse 15. And it starts by this, as the Holy Spirit speaks in the Scripture to us and confirms the doctrine of the new covenant. Notice what it says, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. Now what is going to be quoted in verse 16 and 17 is from the prophet Jeremiah, specifically Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, and then verse 34. And that is where Jeremiah prophesied of the new covenant. Now if you look, or you don't have to look there, I'll just turn there, and by the way, this morning I'm going to reference a lot of passages of Scripture. Don't feel the need to turn there, I'll turn there for you. But you'll notice that Jeremiah's prophecy begins this way, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh. In other words, as Jeremiah speaks the word of God, he is proclaiming the word of Yahweh. When we come to the book of Hebrews, we are specifically told, this is what the Holy Spirit speaks. So we're told that it's the Holy Spirit spoke through 
the prophet Jeremiah. And in the book of Hebrews, you see this in other places. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7, we read this. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then Psalm 95 is quoted. And so throughout the book of Hebrews, we see at many times that when the Old Testament passages are referenced, it said, this is the Holy Spirit speaking. But the previous time we saw Jeremiah referenced in Hebrews, it said this is the Son speaking. And in other places that we see in Hebrews where the Old Testament Scriptures are speaking, it's referring to God who is speaking. And so what we have to know about the Scriptures is this, very simply, is that the Scriptures are the Word of God that came through the pen of a man. Peter writes of this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so when we come to the Scriptures, we're reading the words of our triune God that were given to us through the pen of someone else. This is so important This is why when we read the scriptures during our services, we say, this is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of his word. Because what we are encountering, what we're experiencing as a people together, is God's actual word written down for us. We are not dealing with just the pen of man and the ideas of man, but we're dealing with words of the Holy Spirit. We're dealing with the words of Christ. We're dealing with the words of the Father. We are dealing with the words of our triune God. And notice the specific statement in our text. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. To us. In other words... What the author of Hebrews is saying is the Holy Spirit is confirming the point that's being made. The point that was made about the the preeminence of Christ. the, The point that was being made about how Christ is greater, how Christ is better, how the new covenant is better. The Holy Spirit confirms this. And you'll notice this crucial point comes with this word. These words, bears witness. That's the word to give testimony. So the Holy Spirit gives testimony to the veracity of the statements that are being made. So the New Testament, or we could say the New Covenant, is understood because of Scripture. And what Scripture is being referenced? The Old Testament. In other words, the Old Testament tells us what we need to know about the new covenant that is realized in the New Testament. Let that sink in for a while. So often we look at the Old Testament and we read of the wonderful stories, some of the battles and how God intervened in in human history in remarkable ways and we take lessons from those. But what do we learn from the book of Hebrews is that's all pointing forward to this purpose of God that's revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole entire time that we're reading in the Old Testament as we start in Genesis and we work our way through, we're seeing it progressively move us towards the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so the doctrine of the New Covenant, as we think of the New Covenant and we think of the New Testament, we sometimes only think of it as being revealed in the New Testament, but what is it that we see here? The Holy Spirit actually tells us it's in the Old Testament as well. The Holy Spirit is the one who confirms this to our hearts. Did you know the Holy Spirit still speaks today? That the Holy Spirit still communicates to the church today. And it's through the same manner that we're told here. And I want you to notice what that manner is. is It's the Holy Spirit speaks through the Word. And so how does the Holy Spirit communicate to the church today? The same way the Holy Spirit always has is through the Word of God. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 through 12. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit teaches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of the person which is in him. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except by the Spirit of God. So how do we understand the things of God is by the Spirit of God. And where does the Spirit of God work is in the Word of God. And it's amazing in how this is stated in Hebrews because it's almost as if he's making a theological argument and he says this is the Holy Spirit actually settles the disagreements that we have or the argument that I'm making. So how do we today settle doctrinal disagreements? How do we today deal with theology and interpretation of the Scripture. The same exact way that we're told here, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. And so, in other words, as we're forming, formulating, thinking, or even speaking on the things of God, it must be regulated by the Word of God because that's where the Spirit of God works in our heart. So how do I understand theology? How do I understand justification? How do I understand the person of Christ? It has to be according to the Word of God because that is where the Spirit works. We must seek the mind of the Spirit. And how do we seek the mind of the Spirit? How do we seek the mind of the Spirit? We open this book that He has given us. We open this book that He has written and given to us is how we seek the mind of the Spirit. If we desire the work of the Spirit in our life, if we desire a work of the Spirit in this church, let us go through the means that the Spirit works, which is the Word of God. I think that sometimes because of you see in many churches this idea of the Spirit's work and being some sort of new revelation. We who do not believe that that continues sometimes miss the fact that the Spirit's work, or as Calvin said, the Spirit's playground is the Word of God. And so as we want to see the Spirit working in our lives, it's through the Word of God that we open up and we ask the Holy Spirit to guide us, to direct us, and to teach us through it. The Spirit works through 
the word. Now, as he's going to quote, verse 15 tells us that the Holy Spirit speaks, and then the quote is going to become coming from Jeremiah 31. And we've already actually seen in Hebrews the reference to Jeremiah 31. So why is Jeremiah 31 referenced again? Well, they come in two different segments. Jeremiah in chapter 8 was first communicated to demonstrate the abolition of the old economy or the old covenant. In fact, it says this in Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 13 after Jeremiah was read, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And that word obsolete, it simply means old. It means worn out. It means that the old covenant has been abrogated. Abrogated is a common word in theology. I have one of those grammar uh, software programs that corrects my grammar when I'm writing. And every time I would write the word abrogated in something, it would click up and say, this is an outdated, antiquated word that no one uses anymore. Choose a different word. And I'd say, no, but that's the right word. And I've realized that we don't, because we don't use the word abrogated too often, sometimes we don't know what abrogated means. It means it's done. It's gone away with. So when it says that it's been made obsolete, it's abrogated, it's ceased, it's, it's no longer in use. That was the point of the first quote of Jeremiah 31. And then the second quote of Jeremiah 31 that we find in our text this morning, it's not to quote that it's been abrogated, but it's quoted again to demonstrate actually something, a different angle. And that is the permanence of the new and the newness of the new. So whereas the first time Hebrews quotes Jeremiah, it's to say it's over, the old covenant's over, and the new, second time it quotes Jeremiah, it's to say this is the newness of this covenant. And in quoting this, we're, we're reminded of what the contents of this new covenant is. And we see this in verse 16, where we read, This is the covenant that I will make with them. And the first thing I want you to notice in terms of the contents of the new covenant is this. God himself institutes it. God says, I will make. This is something that God is doing. And so then the conditions of the new covenant and the work of the new covenant is a work of God and the fulfillment of the covenant promises comes by way of God's promise. When Jeremiah prophesied of it, he was prophesying something forward. When we encounter it in Hebrews, we're, re- we're encountering something that is complete. I will is a future tense. But it's a realized present reality now because of the coming of Christ. And so the first thing we see is God is the one that institutes this covenant. And the second thing I want you to notice is the word them. This is the covenant that I will make with them. Now what's interesting, as you go to Jeremiah chapter 31, what you will find is that it doesn't say the words them. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
But as Hebrews interprets this, and in fact in chapter 8 it says that as well, but as we get to chapter 10, it replaces Israel and Judah, the house of Judah and the house of Israel with the words them. What's the significance of that? This is the covenant that I will make with them is the church. Some theologians argue that what is prophesied and promised in Jeremiah is literally for the house of Israel and Judah, which misses the whole idea of the Gentile inclusion that Jeremiah also prophesied about. But what the New Testament actually teaches is that these promises are for a newly constituted people of God, Jew and Gentile alike together under one roof. And so these promises is for the church. This is what the New Testament teaches us. And this is entirely different and a break from the past. Because you'll notice the words, after those days. That's speaking of the newness of this covenant. The old covenant's obsolete, but the newness of the covenant is speaking of a new arrangement. Something different has arisen. Now, as we think about the idea of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and their relationship between one another, we have to see what Scripture has taught us. One is obsolete, one is new. Now, they were both covenants. God instituted both covenants. God instituted the Old Covenant. God instituted the New Covenant. It was something that God did each time. But they're different And we have to understand about differences between things. You can have differences of things in quality or difference in things in nature. And what do I mean by that? Well, let me give you an example of a difference of something in quality. You think about the first bicycles that were created. You've probably seen them. They had those big wheels, the one big wheel and the small wheel in the back. Can you imagine riding the Tour de France on one of those? We've had a better quality of bike that's come about. But there can be a different uh, nature of something. And sticking with the, the illustration of a mode of transportation, the nature of a car and the nature of a bike are entirely different. They both are modes of transportation, but one is entirely different. So when it speaks of the new covenant, it's not speaking of a new and better bicycle. It's speaking of something new and different that's not only better qualitatively, but is something that is better by nature. This is why throughout the book of Hebrews, when it refers to the work of Christ and the new covenant, it says it's better. And we see this through the permanence of it, that it's, it's at forever, that it is also that it is perfect. And we are told that in that new covenant, we are made perfect. So it's speaking of a better and a newness by nature and also by quality. The old covenant was simply a teacher. It was a foreshadowing. It was pointing forward. But the ideas of this new covenant are entirely different. And when we put those two terms together of obsolete and newness together, you see that there is not only a, 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 a harsh discontinuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, but there's also a continuity in the fact that one pointed forward. This begins to show us or explain the idea of perfection. 
And I want you to notice how the idea of perfection is explained. If you notice in verse 14, which we looked at last week, for by a single offering he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What does perfection mean? Well, this is all explaining to us how perfection is realized, is realized in the new covenant. But what does this perfection mean? Well, I want you to notice what it says. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. God enables the desires of the law. God enables the desires of the law. Sovereign grace is the reason why we begin to desire the law of God. You see, the law of God is written upon every single human heart, whether they're saved or not. But not every single human heart wants to do the law because they don't have the capacity to do it. But what we're told here is those that are in the new covenant actually have a desire to do the law. You think of the words of David, that he desires the word, he desires the law. And if you ever read that and think it sounds strange, it's because what was written on his heart was the law of God with the capacity to love the law of God. This is an example of the difference that we see between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In fact, the Old Covenant, we were told this, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would then have no occasion to look for a second. What was the fault of the Old Covenant? The fault of the Old Covenant, we're told in chapter 8, verse 9, is they did not continue in my covenant. And I want you to hang on that with this idea of desiring God's law. Why did they not continue in the covenant? Because they did not have the heart that was needed to be obedient to God. In order for the new covenant to be a better and perfect covenant, it would have to be one that is inviolable by God's decree that it could never be said of the Christian, they did not continue in my covenant. And if you are a follower of Christ, it is impossible for you to not follow the Lord Jesus Christ because you have been made new. You have been given new desires. And that is the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. It will never be said of the Christian that they could not continue in my covenant. But for the Christian, it will be said that they did. Why? Because he who began a good work in you will see it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's an inviolable decree of God. And that was the fault of the old covenant. It would have to provide something different for the new covenant to be better. And what the new covenant provides is a changed heart of mind. I want you to notice what the natural state of the heart is. And I I know this is, this is review for us, but after the fall, we see this of the heart of man. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his thoughts, of his hearts, was only evil continually. Just because God brought judgment upon the earth in a flood does not mean the evil intentions of the heart changed. In fact, they remained. 
they remained. Jeremiah speaks of this throughout his prophecy many times, and I think it's important that we hear these words. Jeremiah 5.23, But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and they have gone away. In chapter 17, in verse 9, you're familiar with this passage because we hear it often, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And why, why is this that this is the condition of the heart? Because we have, we have fallen, we have fallen in Adam, but specifically the text of Scripture tells us why our heart is like this. In Jeremiah chapter, 20, uh, chapter 9, verse 26, we read these words, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of the hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. In other words, encompassing universally across all of humanity, they are uncircumcised in heart. That is, the, general, that is the, the universal condemnation across all of mankind is that they are uncircumcised in heart. That is why Scripture says they have a depraved heart. That is why Scripture says that their heart is deceitful and wicked above all things is because their heart is uncircumcised. In the book of Jeremiah, it leads us to this point of saying, if this is my heart... If this is my heart, what hope do I have? And that's why you see the beauty of the new covenant. This is why we see the beauty of a new covenant, which is the promise of a new heart, of a changed heart, of a changed disposition that comes about by God's sovereign grace. Now remember what it says, they broke the previous covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 11 and verse 10, it says, They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Why? Because their hearts were uncircumcised and were wicked and deceitful. Even though they would say over and over again, Yes, Lord, we will follow you. Yes, Lord, we will do what you have commanded. They couldn't because their hearts would not allow them to. Their hearts would not allow them to. So what was the need? What's the need of the heart? The need of the heart is this that we see in Jeremiah 24, 7. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Why, could they, why would they return to God with their whole heart? Because they have a new heart that was given to them. They have a new heart. We see very clearly the problem with our heart. We see why just simply following commands and ceremonies will always lead us to fall short. And what's interesting is the book of Hebrews says this, I will put my law on their hearts, and write it on their minds. The word minds is not actually in the, in the Hebrew text in Jeremiah, but that's to speak of the place of reason. It's speaking of the inner desires of the person. And specifically what we're told is the inner desires of the believer are changed by God. 
So that which is always before God, you think of what we're told about our, our hearts, always before God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That which is always before God, that which is always in God's sight, our inner workings, is what God now is transforming through a new heart. And that new heart now desires God's law. That new heart desires to be obedient. You think about the call to imitate Christ, that we're called to imitate Christ. In John chapter 5, verse 30, the Lord Jesus says, I always do the will of my Father. If you want to imitate Christ, you make that your mantra. That I will always do the will of the Father. That is what Christ did, and that is what we are called to do. And not only are we given a new heart, but we're also given the assistance of God Himself to ensure that we keep on this path. Sometimes we think about the Holy Spirit's work in sanctification and our growth, and in certainly it is the Holy Spirit. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed. That's process. That's progression. Progressively growing is the idea of transformation. That's the goal of our salvation, is transformation. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to, uh, to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so we see this as a work of the Spirit in our lives. But elsewhere we are actually told this, it's not just a work of the Spirit, it is a work of our triune God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. How is it that I am transformed? How is it that after my heart is changed, I continue to have these desires in following after Christ? And as Christ says, I will follow the Father... How is it that those desires become my desires? Because the triune God's wills in you by His Spirit and works in you to transform you, to sanctify you. That is why the triune God's wills in the believer by His Spirit. That is the changed heart that we are promised when it says in Jeremiah and in Hebrews that God will put His law on our hearts. It's put our, His law on our hearts so that we desire it. This changed heart, the circumcised heart, is the promise and the reality of the new covenant. In the New Testament, we often call this regeneration. Jesus called it being born again. Regeneration is the reason why we have a change in us. And regeneration, being born again, is a wonderful word to be able to conceptualize this. Because when we're first born again, we do not know everything, and we do not look like we will look in a few years. It's the same thing with an infant coming into the world. 
Everything's new. They're taking everything in, and they don't know how to walk yet. They, they don't know how to crawl at first. They, they, they can't read yet. There's a whole bunch of things that they are learning and in a process of doing. But the whole difference about this and where the illustration falls short is this, is unlike the infant that at some point stops growing, the Christian is to never stop growing. We should view it in many ways as a perpetual infancy. And that we're always growing in the likeness of Christ. We're always growing. This is regeneration. And that is the reason why we have a change in us. That is the reason why the law of God is written upon our hearts. So the difference between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant is highlighted in this. The Old Covenant, by its nature, was breakable. Because a circumcised heart was not the product of the Old Covenant. It was commanded. Deuteronomy 10.16, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. But the problem was the Old Covenant itself did not provide the means to that. This is why Hebrews says it was faulty. This is why Hebrews says the new is perfect, the new is better. The old was a covenant of works and condition. The new is a promised reality conditioned upon the obedience of Christ and Christ alone. And so, in other words, only the regenerate are part of the new covenant. This is why... Sometimes when we hear this in Bible studies, it's not a correct uh, depiction of the church. We see the cycle of Israel. What's the cycle of Israel? They sin, they repent, and they come back. Then they sin, judgment comes upon them, they repent, and they come back. That is not the cycle of the church. And we should not compare the church to fallen, unregenerate Israel. We're told in the Old Testament there was always a remnant that didn't go through that cycle. The church is only the remnant. That's why we don't go through that cycle. Now you might say, well, hold on, hold on. We see churches that do this and do that, and we see Christians that do that. Sure, yes, it's called sin. But they're never let go and out of the plan of God unless they were never part of the plan of God. Because they are given a new heart. Because their hearts have changed. Their desires have changed. So, should the Christian be progressively growing? The answer is patently obvious. Yes. If I'm not growing in my faith, why? Should an awareness of sin and hatred of sin be growing and become clearer in the heart of the Christian. Yes, absolutely it should be. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 14, we're told these wonderful words, for sin will have no dominion over you. That's a reality of the new covenant. You might sin, but it no longer has that controlling factor over your life. You're no longer identified by it. It no longer controls you. That's what that word dominion is. And why, Paul tells us, since you are not under law, but under grace. This passage is highly abused oftentimes. 
Because it does not abrogate the moral law of God. You remember what abrogate means. It does not abrogate the law of God. What it means is that those that are under the law, by the resources of the law, can never be free of the bondage of sin. In other words, because we are under grace, we have been set free. But if I have not been under grace and I have not been set free, I still then look to the law to be able to grow. And what we find out is the law does not have the capacity to actually make us grow in holiness. It only reveals the depth of our sin. But you are under grace. And because you are under grace, you have been set free. You're no longer under the dominion of the sin. So should the Christian then be progressively growing? Yes. You see, the law guides, it directs, but it can never free us. Only Christ can. And if you are in Christ, Christ has. If you are in Christ and under grace... You have been set free by something better than the law. This is the meaning of I will put my law on their hearts. And the implications for the Christian life are are massive. That we will be growing in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's another part of the contents of the new covenant, not only that we desire God's law because we have a changed heart, because we have been regenerated, but there's forgiveness. And this is one of the particular distinctness of the new covenant. Those that are in the new covenant have been forgiven. If someone's in the new covenant, the text tells us, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. This is stated as a reality. Those that are part of the new covenant are no longer held guilty before God. This is why only believers are part of the new covenant, because only believers are no longer guilty. Specifically, the text says, I will remember their sins no more. And what does that mean when God says, I will remember their sins no more? Where God never forgets anything. God knows all things. God wrote everything that happened. So why? how could God say, I no longer remember? It means God will no longer call to mind your guilt. God will no longer charge to your account the things that you are accountable for. And why? Why are you no longer guilty? Why is it that you have been forgiven? Because Christ has taken it upon the cross and given you His righteousness. And it's past, present, and future. This is a wonderful reality. This is why the Scripture tells us that our salvation is past, present, and future. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, You have been saved. That is past tense. This is something that's accomplished. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, We are being saved. That is something that's happening right now to you. And then Romans 5.9 says, We shall be saved. That's speaking of the future. The idea of our salvation is, is not just merely a one-time event. It's an ongoing reality of the Christian life. From the moment that you trust in Christ by faith, you are saved, and you are being saved, and you will be saved. Why? Because you've been forgiven. Past, present, and future. What a wonderful reality that is that we have forgiveness What a wonderful reality. What do I do with my guilt? 
What do I do with the things that I feel bad about that I have done that, that keep me up at night? I re- I'm reminded of the fact that Christ has forgiven me. And if I'm in Christ, I am forgiven. That's what, that's what happens to my guilt, is that I'm forgiven. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. Christ has forgiven me. And if you're in Christ, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It's what Christ has declared. That's the reality of the new covenant. That is for those that are in the new covenant. What, what, what an amazing God we have and how merciful He is to us. You know, we, we often think about the Lord wanting the Lord to remember us. Lord, remember us in your mercy and grace. In fact, this was oftentimes the cry of the Old Testament that you would see. The people saying, Lord, remember us. Remember us, O Lord. Remember us with your your mercy. In fact, Psalm 115 says it wonderfully. The Lord is remember us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. We're always asking the Lord, remember us. And then we ask the Lord, Please don't remember my sins. Think about that, how we do that. Here's the wonderful truth. If you're in the new covenant, the Lord has remembered you and will always remember you with His grace and His mercy and His blessing upon you. But He's the same God who says this, I I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. He remembers you with blessing and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, but He never brings account to your sins again. They've been washed away. That is the promise, and that is the reality of the new covenant, that we receive His mercy, we receive His grace, those things that we do not deserve, and He ceases to remember our sin and never remembers our sin against us. Now, what's the result of this? The result of this, and this is the the climactic statement of all of the arguments that have been made so far in in the book of Hebrews is verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin, meaning the old covenant's done away with. Why would you look back on the past things? The new covenant offers forgiveness, and so because forgiveness has been offered, as we read, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Where there's forgiveness of sins, there's no longer a need for sacrifice. The sacrifice has been done in the Lord Jesus Christ. So full and final forgiveness has been offered. That's the wonderful truth of the new covenant. And this actually concludes this entire section of Hebrews is with that one wonderful statement. We never have to look back upon our works. We have been told our sins have been taken from us so we may have access to God, that we may enjoy His presence, we may come to His throne of grace. We've been told that our sins are forgiven. We've been told that we are holy, that we're set apart. We've been told incomprehensibly so that we are made perfect. We are told we are forgiven. And that Christ never ceases to stand on your behalf. The new covenant is a gracious covenant because we have a gracious God 
It offers what the old could not, and that is grace. And so if you are in Christ, what God's Word tells us this morning is this, is you are forgiven. You know, oftentimes I think that Christians have a greater sense of justice and a greater moral standard than God Himself. If that sounds like heresy, it's because it is. But I want to show you why Christians sometimes think this. Why don't we forgive others? Because we've elevated a greater standard than God has set. Why is it Christians have a hard time saying, I, I know I'm forgiven in Christ, but I can't forgive myself? Because they've said that they have a higher moral standard than God himself. You realize that if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. No, you did not deserve it. It's called God's grace. And so the mark of a Christian is what? Forgiveness. Not only a forgiveness of our own sins, because Christ has forgiven us when we did not deserve it. He's perfect. He's holy. We're sinful. But also our forgiveness to others must also be always manifest and present in our life unless you have a higher moral standard than God. Unless you have a greater sense of justice than God. We recognize that forgiveness is something given to us that we do not deserve. And that wonderful truth is this. The burden of guilt we often have or the despondency from our sin needs to be laid at the feet of Christ and we need to be reminded of the promises of the new covenant and how it explains how we are forgiven and how Christ has made us perfect by his shed blood. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and the promises realized in him. These promises of the new covenant of forgiveness, of sanctification, holiness. Father, we know we do not deserve your grace, but you are a gracious God who offers it freely in the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you. Father, may these truths never depart from our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.